Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 1. Over the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on the preacher's use of Scripture. And we refer to the book of Hebrews as the preacher because as you read through the book of Hebrews, you notice that it is much like the sermon that a preacher would present. And we're going to be looking at this, the writer of Hebrews, and as he uses Scripture. And the use of Scripture is of utmost importance. Uh, It's a very important thing for us to notice in these passages that Jesus is... Better. We noticed last week, as we got into this, the statement that Jesus was better than the angels. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to begin to give us some evidences. And over the next few weeks, by God's grace, we're going to be uh, looking at all of these different evidences from the Old Testament. And I guess the question that would have to be posed uh, for this morning's message would simply be this. Why is the worship of Jesus so important? Why is the worship of Jesus so important? As we noticed last time, Christ being our better mediator, this time we're going to be getting into a little bit, of, uh, uh, a little bit more of the meat as far as what the writer is trying to produce for us here. Look with me if you would. We're going to read for context's sake. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through... Um, Let's just read it in fulfillment so we get everything in context. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said He at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the, uh, the first begotten in the, into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And, the angels he, uh, and of the angels he saith, who maketh his, minister, his angels' spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter, notice this, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. 
and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Father, we ask something that only you can do, and that is that you would change our hearts. Father, as I present your word this morning, I pray that nothing of me would be seen. But that, Father, the only thing that would be seen is Your Son lifted high. Father, presented in the best way I possibly can. Father, we pray that You would speak to us and that You would change us. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, I asked the question, and sometimes the... uh, the thought is a little, we think, maybe elementary. Is, is Jesus' worship, is the worship of Jesus really that important? Uh, and, and if we've been in church for any amount of time, uh, we would probably say a resounding, yes, absolutely, the worship of Jesus is important. But we need to remember that there are many that we will come into contact with in our life that don't necessarily see Jesus in the same light that you and I see Jesus. They may see him as a good man or as a prophet. Uh, they may see him as a, uh, uh, as a, uh, maybe a created being, perhaps an angel himself, or, or uh, maybe just uh, the greatest creation. Your, uh, uh, if you come into contact with anybody uh, in today's day and time uh, of the Jehovah's Witness persuasion, they believe that Jesus was the first and greatest creation, and that God somewhere along the way gave him deity. Uh, that's why when we read first, or we read John chapter one verse one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was a God. Uh, you, you can't really skirt around the fact of who the Word is, because as you continue to read, you find out that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But uh, for them, uh, they want to take. They don't want Jehovah and Jesus being tied together, and so they they. This, uh, distinct, uh, they make a distinction there by inserting the indefinite article, which does not belong there, A. And so they, they, will let you, uh, they will lead you to believe or let you think that Jesus is not Jehovah God, but He was a created being that was given deity. Well, I, I'm sorry, but this is not true. This is, this is not uh, the case. And so therefore... Uh, any worship of Jesus would be blasphemous in their mind because worship belongs to Jehovah. You have a similar idea within the Mormon faith because they will teach uh, that Jesus was the top greatest angel. And this is why a lot of times there's a uh, uh, sort of the thought that Jesus and Satan were brothers. And this is, this is not true. And the writer of Hebrews is setting the stage for us here uh, <clears throat> to, to make sure that we understand who the person of Jesus is before he goes any further into the rest of what he has to present here in the book of Hebrews. He wants to solidify this in the minds of the readers and the hearers that Jesus is not a created being. He is not just another person in the hand of God, but he is, in fact, God in the flesh. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to put out for us. Now, each of the passages that we're going to be looking at, because we begin here in verse number 5, and we're going to make our way... Uh, I, I had planned on making it through verse 7 at least today. I think I'm going to get through verse 6. But uh, by God's grace, by the end of this month, we will have made it through verse 14. And we're going to look at all these different areas of, uh, of the Old Testament where the writer of Hebrews is pulling text to try to reveal who this person Jesus is. Now, there's something that we need to understand before we go any further. Uh, there's a lot of things that you're going to read in the Old Testament that have immediate application, but they also have prophetic application. And so as we read some of these passages, there is an immediate context, but it's also a foreshadowing of something that is to come. And we need to understand that as we go into it. While the Old Testament does, for example, refer to Israel, Solomon, and some others through uh, the Old Testament as sons, nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is anyone singled out like the Son of God is, as in this passage. And so there's a distinct difference. And so when someone tells you, well, God refers to everybody as sons, we're all considered sons, there's a difference between sons and the Son. And we need to understand the difference. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to put that out to us. And so when, when we uh, go through the Old Testament, uh, we're going to find from the rest of this passage certain texts that are used. Now each of these passages uh, were chosen by the writer of Hebrews, I believe, to identify the Davidic king, and not just to identify who the Davidic king was, but these passages also reveal that the coming Davidic king would be God himself. Now, these are not proof texts. These are uh, verses that are, are being selected to simply bring to mind the whole of the Old Testament. He says this one, for example, this one, for example, this one, for example. These are not proof texts. Let me explain what I mean by proof texts. If I believe or I want to believe something in the Bible, I will go to the Bible and try to find something to verify it. I can prove just about anything I want to prove with the Bible if I single out certain texts. Uh, for example, they, uh, uh, those who believe that Jesus was simply a created being and not God in the flesh will take verses such as Christ being the firstborn. Uh, you find that in Colossians chapter 1. You find it here in the passage that we're reading right now. And they will say, see, he's the first one born. And they are trying to proof text. If someone believes that you can, uh, you, you can uh, not eat meat, you're not allowed to eat meat, it's a sin for you to eat meat, they can go to the Word of God and they can proof text and try to pull certain verses out and say, see, here's proof. That's proof texting. When I go to the Word of God looking for proof to verify my suspicion, I'm proof texting. This is not what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Rather, he is, not, he is not eisegeting, he is exegeting. To exegete the Word of God means that I go to the Word of God with my personal preferences, my personal opinions, my personal thoughts put to the side. I read the Word of God and see what it says, not what I want it to say. 
There's been many days uh, and, and many people who have occupied the sacred desk of the pulpit of God and have presented what they wanted to present to, pr- to, to promote what they wanted to promote to, uh, to further an agenda that they wanted to further. And they have proof texted. There are many people that have done this through the year, but I want you to understand this is not what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He is simply bringing to light certain scriptures. And what's, what's interesting is he doesn't really go to the most well-known. He goes to the ones that are a little more obscure. Now, if someone was trying to proof text, it would be very easy to go to the big and bold ones. But what he does is he says, let me just draw to light and see if I can just shed a little bit of light. And it's like taking a a flashlight into a field. And when you go out early in the morning and you got hunting and you've got your little headlamp on, you got your, uh, your little flashlight, the one that you have been letting sit in the drawer for the entire year in the hopes that the batteries would slowly start to die. And that way when you get out in the woods, it's not like turning on a big, huge you know, car lamp. It's very dim. You're just kind of making your way through. Don't want to scare anything. And you're making your way through. And then you get out to your spot. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find your little place. And it was hard to get out there. And praise God, you didn't kill yourself in the process. When you get out to your spot, you're sitting there, and then you wait, and then a little bit of light starts to come on. And a little more light comes on. And before you know it, the sun is out, shining, and you can see everything clearly. The writer of Hebrews is shedding a little bit of light in the hopes that it'll wake us up. Now, I want you to notice something that is taking place here in verse number 5. Look at what it says. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now I want you to notice in this that we see some, uh, uh, some evidences. And it's evident that the writer of Hebrews believes that the whole of the Old Testament points to Christ, points to the Messiah. He, he believes that the whole uh, that Christ is able to be seen in every aspect of the Old Testament, and that uh, that while the Old Testament does refer to Israel and even Solomon as sons, nowhere it has it been isolated. Uh, but it's apparent that the writer sees this psalm that he is quoting from as messianic. Go back, if you would, if you want to see where he's referring to, because it's important. Just stop for a minute. This is an important Bible study tip. Whenever you see words like, when did God ever say this at any time, take note of that next phrase. Because you'll notice what he's saying. He says in verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That is a clue. He says he never said this about the angels, but he's insinuating that he said it about God, about somebody. And so in my mind, I want to write that passage down or that statement down and go, where is that in Scripture? And I go looking for it in the Old Testament. Thankfully, in the year 2021, we have many, 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 many reference notes in our Bibles. And you can usually just look down at the bottom of the page or in your sitter column or wherever it is and find it. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2.
the writer of Hebrews views Psalm chapter 2 as a messianic psalm. And so, I think we need to pay close attention to what is being said here. Let's read this uh, carefully. Verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance." and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled. But a little blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. You'll remember from back in verse number 7, He says He will declare, the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. While there may be some immediate application, the question that comes to mind is in verse number 8. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Never at any moment in Israel's life has they, have they ever had all, every bit, the uttermost parts of the earth. There is a prophetic idea with this because God promised. He says, I will give thee this world as an inheritance. If the kings of Israel did not get it, does that mean God lied? There's a Davidic king coming who one day will rule and reign over every inch of this world. I'm looking forward to that day. Now, realize something in this. There are many opinions. I told you last time. <laughs> you can pick up 12 different books, uh, commentaries on the book of Hebrews, and they're all going to say something a little bit different. They don't contradict one another so much as they have different opinions on what was being referred to in certain cases. So don't misunderstand me. Of course, some of them contradict because some of them just are nothing more than kindling. But... The ones, that, uh, the, the ones I'm referring to, they'll maybe draw some application and say that this is saying that and this is meaning this or this references to this over here. That's okay. I, I, my, my goal today is not to give to you what these commentators have to say. My goal today is to give to you the best that I can come up with, the best that I can believe uh, as far as uh, most accurate, the most beneficial. You're going to notice in this that not only in the book of Psalms is he referring to one, this day have I begotten thee, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. But if you go also to 2 Samuel chapter 7, go back just a few books into 2 Samuel chapter number 7, and you're going to see the promise that God made with David.
notice what he says here, uh, starting in verse, um, let's just start in verse number 4. We'll read for a little bit. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. We'll continue in just a minute. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan is delivering a message to David from the Lord. Can, can I just pause for station identification? In the Old Testament days, God spoke to people, certain people, who gave the message out. Today, we have the written Word of God. You know how many times someone, and you may have had it the same way, people will say, well, God doesn't speak to me the same way He speaks to you. We ain't in the Old Testament no more. You can pick up the same Bible I can and be spoken to by God. You want God to speak to you, you got to get into His Word. That's free. We'll move on. Verse number 6. Actually, go back to verse number 5. I did not finish that. Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day have I walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, I uh, uh, with all the children of Israel spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore. So shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, uh, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men of the, uh, that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when the days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Pause. This is a wonderful example of what I was saying just a moment ago about immediate and future context. God said He's going to build David a house. And then right after that, He says, when you're dead... So wait a minute. What's going on here? You see the prophetic stint that is being taken in the passage now. Let's continue to move on. Uh, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, 
the kingdom is not around in this way? Has the kingdom of Israel been around forever? Or is there a problem here? So either God was wrong or he's talking about something coming. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him out of the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Solomon committed iniquity. And Christ was chastened. Don't let some fool try to give you some sort of garbage about no, 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 Jesus ain't the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews finds some very good evidence that what we're reading here in 2 Samuel and in Psalm chapter 2 is in reference to Christ himself. Let's continue to kind of move along here with this. I don't want to drag things along. We've got our Valentine's where the kids are going to be watched and we've got our Valentine dinner going on. So if I don't get the opportunity to shake your hand, forgive me now because i got a date with a pretty girl and, and see you. So let's, let's keep moving. Never have all the nations of Israel, nor all, all the nations been Israel's, nor has all the earth been Israel's. This can only be, these passages that we're looking in reference to here, can only be that of a, a, a rule and reign that is one day coming. You see, there are a couple words that we need to understand here. First, I want to take a look. If you go back into Psalm chapter 2, you'll notice where he says, This day have I begotten thee. Psalm chapter number 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Uh, Some take this, this day, uh, to mean that uh, an eternal idea. Well, it's an eternal idea. Day is what it's talking about. When it says, this day have I begotten thee, it's kind of an eternal thing because Christ is the eternal Son of God and, and, and so forth and so on. Uh, some take this to be in reference to the incarnation. That when Christ was born, that at that moment is what God's talking about. This day have I begotten thee. That today uh, meaning that. Um, some, however... Uh, Do not see this as the incarnation or in an eternal sense. My personal uh, uh, belief is that this is talking in reference uh, to Christ's atonement. And here's what I want to kind of put a little bit of a beeline to. Go, if you would, to Acts chapter number 13, and I'll give you a reason why I believe it's in reference to Christ's work. And when he was exalted, he was brought up and exalted on high. Acts chapter number 13. Look at Acts chapter 13 and drop down into verse number... Look at verse number 32 with me, if you would, please. And we declare, yeah, uh, and we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, 
God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. If you want a little bit more of a reference, this is I don't want to be guilty of proof texting, go to Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1. The very next book, same psalm that was referenced over in the book of Hebrews, same psalm, and it ties this meaning to the raising of Jesus from the dead. Notice Romans chapter number 1. The introduction, the salutation of Paul, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I love the way God's Word points back to God's Word, don't you? Do you realize that the Quran uh, is allowed to contradict itself because the, the further along you get, that one supersedes the previous one? And so when you read in one part that it's wrong to do this, but a little bit later it's okay to do that, well, the later version, the, more, uh, the, the closer to current version, is, is the right one. You go by that one. God's Word says, no, 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 no. It all connects. It all agrees. Verse number 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This day have I begotten you. This day he was declared because of what he did. Because of the work that he accomplished. And now He is seated on the throne of God. Realize that while His rule and reign may, for this moment, it may appear to be far off. We think about it, oh, there's coming a day where God is going to rule and reign. There's coming a day where God's going to rule, and I'm looking forward to that day. You know what? I'm looking forward to that day too. But I want you to realize something. His rule and reign is not that far off. The victory is already won. He's just waiting. And we may in our mind think to ourselves, what? There's, so, there's, so, there's a worry. Well, what's going to happen if the wrong person becomes president? Or what's going to happen if the house is... Or what's going to happen if the nation... Or what's going to happen... Oh, mercy me! Is God not going to be... He's already won! <laughs> Quit worrying about the things of this world. Quit worrying and fretting and stressing so much about things... That, look! If this world comes crashing down, he's still already won. I'm not worried about what's going to happen with the commerce and with the economy and with this and with that and with. I'm not going to worry about that kind of stuff because I have a God who has already won the battle. There's no worry. 
it's, <laughs> I was watching some documentaries. I like documentaries. I was watching some documentaries this week on, on machines that were made. And when you look at the technology that Rome had or that Greece had and the way they went into war, do you realize that the Grecians had a flamethrower? They had a handheld version of a flamethrower. It was a little pump shooting napalm at people thousands of years before our military ever came into contact with it. That's cool. I don't care. Y'all sitting there like, oh, come on, man. Are you nuts? Did you know that they had an air pressure steam-operated cannon 1,500 years before anybody else thought of it? I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm watching this going, holy cow pies, man, this stuff is awesome. How would you have liked to have been on that team? In 1976, when the Jews were being, the final bits of the rebellious Jews were being attacked by Rome. Less than a thousand individuals of men, women, and children, approximately 200 people who could fight up against about 5,000 of Rome's elite. They were throwing rocks while Rome had battering rams, catapults, just amazing technology. I don't think the Roman soldiers were going into it going, oh, you think the rock's going to hurt me? (laughs) They knew they were on the winning side then why is it that people who claim to be born again by the Spirit of God and have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior fret and worry about everything that is not important? We're on the winning side. We're going into battle having already won. When the day finally came that the Romans had breached the walls, they came back and they let the walls burn down. The Romans went to their camp purposing the next morning to go in and slaughter everyone. They knew it was a done deal. Can I tell you just for a minute... It's a done deal. God is victorious. And when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we need to realize that His victory is already won. I want you to notice something else with this. And we're going to make our way to conclusion here. To read the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, to actually read them and to correctly read the Old Testament. When I say correctly read the Old Testament, I I mean there is a correct way and an incorrect way to read the Bible. I told you about it a while ago. 
when I have my thoughts and then I go to the Bible and try to find something to prove my thoughts. That's the incorrect way to read the Bible. But when I read the Bible and I let the Word of God do its thing and I, I study it and I seek it for what it says, that's the correct way. Can, you, can, can I just say it this way? In correctly reading the Bible and reading the prophecies about the coming Messiah, one must conclude that the coming Messiah would be divine. There's no other conclusion Now, I understand that they had bits and pieces of it coming one at a time. But today, and in Jesus' day, they could go back. They had the Septuagint, the Greek version of, or the Greek translation of the, uh, 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 of the Hebrew texts. They had it. They could read it themselves. They could go and sit under the readings of it every single Sabbath. They could go sit and be read. If they wanted to go to the temple in the other days, they could sit and have it read to them. And the only conclusion that we can come to is that that Messiah, that coming Davidic king, would be divine. Now I want you to see something else with this. Go to Ezekiel with me, if you would. Just indulge me for a minute. Go to Ezekiel chapter 30. Ezekiel chapter number 34. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34. And I want, I want you to see something about this coming Messiah. Let's, let, I tell you what, let's have a little bit of fun. Put your hand in Ezekiel 34 because we're going to connect a couple dots here and go to John chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 34 and John chapter 10. And I never apologize for giving you a whole lot of Scripture because that means you're getting less of me. Man, pastor's going all over the place. Good. Look at John chapter number 10 first. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. John chapter number 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I, I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. But there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Catch that. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Now go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter number 34, look at verse number Look at verse number 10 with me. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. Whose flock? God's flock. 
I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, and uh, that they may not be meat for them. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among uh, his sheep that are scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in the good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall be their fold. There they shall lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture Uh, shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel I will feed my flock and will cause and I will cause them to lie down saith the Lord God I will seek that which was lost and bring them that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen them that which uh, that which was sick but I will destroy the fat and the strong I will feed them with judgment drop down to verse 20 Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because ye have thrust with... Thrust with side and with shoulder and punished all the diseased uh, with your horns till you have scattered them around. Therefore, I will say, will I save my flock and they shall be no more prey and I will judge between the cattle and cattle and I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David, a, a prince among them, I the Lord have spoken it. Notice what is being said. God says, I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to be the one that feeds him. I'm going to do this. And I will set up my shepherd, the Davidic king. Either God abdicated being the shepherd to a man, or it's still God being the shepherd. Do you see the connection where John 10 is presenting Jesus and he says, I am that good shepherd. There's no way around the fact that Christ is divine. No way around it. God also does not share His worship. We're going to look at this as our concluding thought. Psalm chapter 97. Psalm chapter 97. Now, in the book of Hebrews, in verse number 6, we have another quote. Now, again, you're going to read many different commentaries, and many commentaries are going to say it's not in reference to Psalm 97. That's okay. What they'll do is they'll take you to Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter number 32. Personally, I have a hard time, it's a little more of a stretch to me, but I'm not as smart as some people, and so they may be right and I may be wrong, and that's okay. But in Psalm chapter 97, look at verse 7. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols, 
Worship Him, all ye gods. Now you'll notice that gods is in the lowercase g. Now this is one of those difficult words we come across. The word that can be actually placed there, some actually translate this word as messenger, some translate it as high and important ones. And it can be basically translated anyone who is above the earth. So if you were to go into the proto, for example, the proto-Indo-European language, you would find a certain word meaning God, in reference to God, it was Jupater. Now, we have that, interestingly, in both Latin and in Greek, because Jupater became Jupater in Latin, Jupiter. Jupater in Greek... Eventually they drop the father part and you have Zeus. This is where you get those words. It literally means sky father. Sky father. Have you ever prayed our father who art in heaven? You're praying to the sky father. That's what you're praying to. And so this word that can be that is viewed here, it says, worship him all ye gods. It is not a stretch for it to be understood that in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, where it says that God commanded the angels to worship him, that he could very well be in reference to this verse. It's not a stretch. But I want to point that out because I, I think it's important for us to note something. If you were to look, and I'm going to give you just a few uh, passages of Scripture, you can jot these down and look them up on your own time. If you were to look at Exodus chapter number 20, the first, uh, first six verses of it, you'll find pretty quickly that you're supposed to worship God and God alone. If you were to connect Exodus chapter 20 with Exodus chapter 34 verse 14, Exodus 34 14 lets us know that you are supposed to worship Him and Him alone. If you were to look at Matthew chapter number 4 and, uh, and Deuteronomy chapter number 6, you would find Jesus telling, uh, telling Satan, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter number 6, verse 13. He says that you're supposed to worship the Lord your God and Him only shalt thou serve. And so I have a difficulty. I believe that this comes to, a more, uh, uh, to more light as we understand what is actually being said back here again in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews one last time with me if you would please. Hebrews chapter number 1. I want you to understand that God through scriptures has made it clear that Christ, the Christ, would be divine made it abundantly clear. And so back to my original question, why is the worship of Jesus so important? If you were to look at those passages that I was just giving you, God is the maker, the only true God, the only one as such who deserves our worship, and He has every right to be jealous. I need you to realize the implications. Pause for just one more moment here. By the time we get to the end of chapter 1, I want it to be abundantly clear who Christ is. By the time we get to the, chapter, uh, uh, to the end of chapter number 1, everything else will begin to make sense in light of who we see Christ to be. 
But realize the implications here. What should our response be if Christ is God? Notice verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. I don't believe that this, again, is in, ref- is in reference to, uh, uh, to the birth of Bethlehem. Some believe it's in reference to the millennial. Some even view it as the second, king, uh, second coming. I believe it goes back to what we've studied leading up to this point in the book of Hebrews so far. That where Christ was made a little lower than the angels for a short a while, and then He was exalted on the throne as the God-man. Again, God said, Angels, worship the man, Christ Jesus. If the angels worship Him, He must be divine. Because God shares His worship with no one. He does not allow anyone else. He says, I, even I, am the only God, the only Savior. Here's for you the basis of the rest of the book. If Jesus is God and deserving of worship, the only response that we can rightly give is to worship Him. Now it's time for us to put our big boy pants on. Are you worshiping Him? If He truly deserves worship, if even the angels have been commanded, we too must worship. And that means I will worship Him in the purity of my relationships. I will worship Him in how I parent my children. I will worship Him in the way I am a husband or the way you are a wife. I will worship God in the way that I have an attitude with others. I will worship Him by being kind when the opposite is deserving. I will worship Him by placing Him before my personal wants and desires. I will worship Him with how I use His finances. I will worship Him with what I put into my mind through my eyes and through my ears. I will worship Him in how I am uh, allowing myself to be modest or the lack thereof. I will worship my God, my Lord, and my Savior in the entertainment choices that I have. I will worship God by what I do on my phone. I will worship God with the laptop or the desktop, and that next click is a worship or a lack of worship. 
I will worship Him in how I use or how I waste the time that He has given to me. I will worship my God in how I devote myself to His Word. Many people, if we simply used how much time we spend in the Word of God as the litmus test for what kind of a worship experience we have, most of us, most of us would come up lacking. I will worship Him in how I obey what He has said to me through His Word. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Wait a minute. If you believe that, then you need to quit devoting your life to everything else. I made a promise to you at the beginning of this year. This year, I'm going, to, I'm going to give myself wholly to nothing but presenting Christ to you. I'm going to do everything that I can to teach and to preach. And that's what I'm going to give myself to wholly. I, I, I'm, I, I'm looking at, hopefully here in the next couple of weeks, kicking off a Sunday evening st- uh, study group. You want to come learn some more things? You want to come learn how to study Greek words? You want to come learn how to do some Greek word studies? You want to learn biblical Greek? Do you want to learn certain uh, studies in specific areas? That's what I'm going to be doing. And it may just be a couple nights of you and me and just a few of us sitting together and just opening up the Word of God. Don't take your eyes off of it. Just study. Just study. But if you and I believe that He deserves worship, then you and I need to worship Him with all of our mind, body, and strength, and soul. Ah, come on, preacher. You don't have the kind of schedule I have. I didn't ask you. I'm just telling you what is logical. If you want to come up with an excuse, that's on you. I do it too. I excuse my own self many, many times. It's not right. But let me make one last statement and we'll be done. When I do not worship Him, when I do not obey Him, when I do not love Him, when I do not prefer Him as I ought to, it is because I have not truly seen Him for who He truly is. I can say I believe that He's God. And I can say I believe He deserves my worship. But if I withhold it, it's because I have not seen that He's truly God and truly deserving of all my worship. The writer of Hebrews wants to make it abundantly clear the angels worshiping. They've been commanded to. But they do it for joy. There are some that were made that their entire eternal existence is simply holy, holy, holy. And they don't complain. 
they enjoy it. For eternity, they have been crying, Holy, holy, holy. If spending a life worshiping Him sounds like a drudgery, my friend, you don't know Him. If the thought of worshiping Him in all the different ways that I listed a moment ago makes you upset or cringes or makes you just kind of sick to your stomach, you mean I've got to worship Him in my entertainment choices too? My friend, you don't know Him. To know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to worship Him. Golly, Pastor, you're kind of harsh, ain't you? I'm just relaying the message I received this week. Here in just a moment, music's going to begin to play. And what I want you to do in your mind and in your heart is I want you to examine your life and ask this question very simply. When I'm praying here in just a moment, you ask the Lord, would you show me areas in my life where I'm withholding worship from you? And I promise you, if you sincerely ask Him, He will reveal it. If you don't want to know, don't ask. But if you genuinely want to know, take the first one that He reveals to you and do something with it today. Father, I believe that I presented the best that I could what it is that You showed me this week. Father, I pray that I was not in the way. That Your Word was seen and heard right. Father, speak to hearts. Father, that we would not be holding back from You what You so rightly deserve. Help us to trust You. To rely on You. To follow You. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.